All right, here we go. The inaugural episode of Framework Friends. Welcome, everyone. Hey, Aaron, what are we doing here? So my name's Aaron, and we are talking about Laravel and Rails. So I guess it was like a couple weeks ago or maybe a month ago, we were chatting about some of the stuff we were working on and thought we both think kind of similarly, but we're in entirely separate worlds. I'm in the Laravel world and you're in the Rails world. And we thought this would be like kind of a good interplay because we've been friends for so long and we're in such different places, but kind of in the same place, but in different worlds. And so we thought, well, let's record something. I mean, is that kind of how you remember it? Yep, absolutely. So I should introduce myself. I'm Andrew. And that was more or less the gist of it. I think we have so many conversations about things and have had over the years, but even like when we're collaborating on things or like bouncing ideas off of each other. And I can't count the number of times we've had in-depth discussion about something, sometimes really technical and comparing and contrasting the way things get done in the Laravel ecosystem and the Rails ecosystem. And at the end of it, I just am left with the feeling like, I wish we had hit record on that because that was kind of cool. There's another side to it as well. I feel like we have a lot of mutual friends, people that we talk to about this kind of stuff. But amongst our mutual friends, I don't know that there's too many people that would want to hop on a call, hit record and talk about stuff at the technical depth, the sort of like, yeah, the framework level. And so I think when that kind of emerged as, hey, we're both interested in this. None of our friends necessarily want to do this (laughs) (laughs) with us. Why don't we schedule a time and and start doing this? So, yeah, I think it's I think it's going to be really fun. Yeah, that's interesting that I think you have correctly identified that no one else really wants to talk to us about this kind of stuff. And it's not like it's less how do you do this in Rails versus how do you do this in Laravel, but more, I think, what are some of the philosophies about the frameworks that are the same and that are different? And what are, I think this will be very interesting as we go on, what are opportunities to pull stuff from the other ecosystem into your own ecosystem Like, where are there gaps in Laravel that there aren't gaps in Rails? And how can we pull over some of that knowledge from Rails into the Laravel ecosystem and vice versa? And so it's like at a very high, almost meta level, but also at a very technical low level. So I think it'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, I think one aspect of that as well, which is way different now than it was maybe whatever, five, 10 years ago. I remember, this is a bad memory for me, actually, but I'm going to share it. I went to PHP Tech in 2008. So I was a PHP developer before I was a Rails developer and have always had a sort of bent toward framework level thinking really way before I should have, actually. So even when I was like just cutting my teeth on development, I was always like leaning into abstractions and trying to make reusable components and things like that. It's just sort of how I'm wired. Maybe I'm lazy. I don't know. But I went to PHP Tech and there was this joke happening at that time. Somebody actually went to the effort of printing up stickers that had the Rails logo. But instead of Rails, it said, you want to guess? Oh, gosh, it's cringe already. Is it fails? 
Yeah, absolutely. I did not well, know that, and I accurately guessed, and it's super cringe. <laughs> it's the worst, right? Like, yeah. that is, I mean, I think that says something about what developer culture was sort of like at that time and some of the stuff that was tolerated. But totally bad vibes, right? And I think that's really changed. I think I literally work on a product, Bullet Train. We can talk kind of about our projects and our background stories and stuff. But I work on something that is directly inspired by Laravel Spark or like what Spark was back five, six years ago or whatever. And I don't think I'm alone in that. I think there's mutual admiration in the ecosystems. Matthias reached out to me and asked to port one of my open source libraries from Rails into a a, a corresponding Laravel version of it. So I know that it goes both ways. And I think that's what we're here to basically give an outlet for. So I think there are times when things come up in the Rails ecosystem and it's genuinely exciting. And there's other times where things come up in the Laravel ecosystem and it's genuinely exciting. And I think we're all excited for each other, for what's working good. And there's an appreciation that everybody has just sort of picked the thing that works the best for them. And there is, like you said, there's inspiration that we can take both ways. So that's what we're here for. Yeah. And I think that was part of the reason we explicitly named this framework friends. The framework wars, if they're not over, we declare them over right now. They're over. Like we've moved beyond that. And I think even... A couple days ago, DHH tweeted congratulations to Taylor Otwell on, they did a Laravel documentary and DHH tweeted about it and was like, Laravel's amazing. PHP is my first love. Congratulations, Taylor. And it's like, okay, this is reasonable. Why can't we just be reasonable like this? So I know that the conference you went to was 14 years ago now, but I'm hoping all of that animosity is gone at this point. Yeah, I think it is. So before we jump into sort of what we had been planning on talking about in our first episode, I just want to point out, you made a huge announcement. This is hilarious (laughs) to me that 30 minutes before you're scheduled to get on a whatever, a one hour call or whatever, you announce an absolutely huge sort of change in the course of your career. Yes. What did you announce? So I... I'm taking a new job after almost five years working at my current job, and I am going to be the marketing engineer at Tuple. So I just announced it, literally just announced that today, and I couldn't be more excited. I'm thrilled to death about it. I think everybody is absolutely pumped for you. I think by the time this episode posts, it'll probably be old news and that will have kind of like uh, disseminated out to everybody. But I am so excited for you. Congratulations. It is an amazing opportunity. Ben Ornstein, the CEO at Tuple, retweeted your announcement and said, hey, Aaron's a rare find. Really excited about what we're going to do together. That's paraphrasing it. And I totally agree. I think it's an incredible hire for Tuple. Also, I think Tuple is also a rare find of a company. They are a very special business and Everybody I know that uses them loves them. It's awesome now that I can show up in a company that has 40 or 50 engineers and they're already on Tuple. Yeah. And so you can pair and coach that way. That is an awesome product. So I'm pumped for you, man. I think that's going to be really great. Thanks. I think in one of the last tweets, I said, I'm just so excited to go work at a company that is just universally loved in our corner of the internet. Sure. But every single person that we all know in this little section of being online 
every single one of them loves tuple and it's been cool for me because i've listened along to ben and derek on art of products for a couple of years and so i feel like i am very familiar with what they're up to and so when i saw that opportunity it was kind of a no-brainer i have been at my job for five years and haven't applied for anything else there were like two companies that if they ever had openings i would go work for them and tuple was one of them and so here we are it's amazing all right so getting to the thing that we wanted to talk about today origin stories why don't you start by giving a little bit of background to not necessarily our origin stories in terms of us personally becoming developers or any of that stuff that's fun too but i think specifically talking about the frameworks themselves what were you doing right before you found Laravel and what was it about Laravel that drew you to using it and then really converted you over the long haul to be like a, a super fan of Laravel? Yeah, so I got started with Laravel, I think, goodness, I want to say 2013, maybe. So a long time ago at this point, and I'd been a PHP developer before that. PHP was the second language I picked up and it's the one I've been with ever since. ASP.NET was the first one. So before I got like fully into Laravel, I was using a framework called Yi, which is impossible to say out loud. It's Y-I-I. So like trying to say Yi on a podcast is really tough, but it was a good framework and it was one of the early ones. I specifically remember trying to pick between Yi and Laravel, I think it was four at that point, which is a long time ago. And I picked Yi because I couldn't get Laravel running locally. It was something to do with like, maybe needed some sort of international string extension and PHP. It was so funny because I couldn't get it running locally and I got Yi running locally. And I was like, okay, I'll just use this one. And so I just picked up Yi and I used that for probably a year or two and it was fine. But then I kind of looked at Laravel again. And at that point it was just Taylor. So I'll say Taylor put a huge amount of emphasis on documentation and the ecosystem slash community had started to grow up around it already in that I think at that point Laracasts was already a thing. And Laracasts is our big, I think you'll have Railscasts. Laracasts is our huge education site, video education. And it's all run by a guy named Jeffrey Way. And early on, he was putting out just tons and tons of super high quality content. And so I remember switching to Laravel, I think at 5.0 or maybe 5.1 or 2 or something. And the thing that hooked me at the beginning and honestly has kind of kept me all this while is just the insane amount of effort that goes into their documentation and their developer experience and the ecosystems kind of, I feel like that's trickled down from Taylor and that he puts a huge amount of emphasis in developer experience. And so that trickles down to kind of the people who write blog posts and the people who make videos and all of that is very laser focused on pragmatism and developer experience. And so I think that's kind of what hooked me and kind of has kept me around. There are other things since then that have made it so that I'll never leave. But I think that was the initial hook. That's really interesting. So I think for me on the Rails side, 
I think it was a little bit before Laravel because I was in PHP. I don't remember Laravel being a thing. I don't even really remember what the frameworks were like Symphony or like Cake PHP, stuff like that. Yeah. And there was Zend Framework, which was this sort of, if I remember correctly, it was like this very first party, very gatekeepery kind of thing to contribute to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I I remember spending a lot of time thinking, oh, I want to propose this ORM or whatever I was working Mm -hmm. on. But they kind of already had an official package and I kind of thought it stunk and I thought I could do something really special. And so I had like this proprietary ORM that corresponds now to what actually even back then it corresponded to. And this was the thing that got me to kind of switch over was my friend Brian Smith was working at the same company as me. We were both development managers at that point. And he had gotten in one of the the like smaller divisions of the business where he had a little bit more say there was a little bit less legacy and so there wasn't this huge php app or any of that stuff Mm -hmm. and so he started doing stuff on rails and he was just absolutely flying it was because all of these sort of higher level components the thing that was already there by rails three time was errol it was like the whole object relational mapper stuff it was this big rebuild of the ORM and Rails, I think primarily pushed forward by Aaron Patterson, Tenderlove. And that did it for me. Just that alone, because I had spent so much time crafting my own in PHP. And there was this whole like, they got the MVC thing down. The M is like overpowered. It's fantastic. That was specifically, I think, in Rails 3 was the perfect time. It was the perfect time for me to be introduced to it. And I was like, you know what? It was crazy, dude. I quit my job to switch into Rails, my full-time managerial position. Did you know Ruby at that point? No. Wow. So I started messing around with it, started building some stuff on the side, and I was hooked. I knew this is what I want to do. I want to play with these Legos. These are the toys that I want to play with. (laughs) And there was a consultancy locally that was... This is a funny story, maybe too much in the details of this particular story, but I knew that they were hiring because some of the people on my team, I had, I had, I think I had about 10 people that were reporting to me and I was starting to hear rumbling people on my team that wanted to go work at this rails consultancy. And I looked at what the opportunity was and I basically cut a deal and said like, look, I don't know rails. I don't know Ruby, but I'm pretty sure I'm like a good developer and I'm pretty sure I can pick it up. So why don't you hire me at a junior level? This is a legit thing that happened. Wow. The, yeah, it was Brennan Dunn was the one oh, who ran yeah. the consultancy. Yeah. So double your freelancing, all of that. So I went to Brennan and said, hire me as a junior. What do you pay your juniors? Oh, you're paying your juniors more than my full salary as a manager in this big corporation. Great. Oh, <laughs> why don't gosh. you hire me as a junior? What do you pay your seniors? Oh, I'll tell you what. I know in my heart of hearts, I'm a senior developer. I've been there, done that at that point in my career, whether that was naive or not, maybe, but you know, title, whatever. I said to him, hire me as a junior. And the first time I do a project start to finish on my own with no intervention from anybody, then push me up to senior. I'll prove it to you. And he's like, done. It's a deal. And so that happened in like within like three or four months, I was a senior developer in that consultancy. Yeah, yeah. I didn't waste time. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, the other thing that I said to him at that time was, I will not learn on your dime. I will put in full-time effort with you of stuff that feels like a real developer contribution in Rails. 
And any learning that I have to do, that'll be on my own dime, on my own time. And those were long days. If you ask Carly what that was like, I was working like 15 hour days because I was good for what I said. I knew that we couldn't bill myself out to customers learning right. on their dime or to whatever, learn right? Ruby. Yeah. 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 So I worked long days. I would go into the office. This wasn't a remote company. We had a proper office and stuff. And so I'd go into the office in the day, consult, do phone calls. And then I would go home and just uh, until I felt like I had really done a full day. And it was so worth it. It was so good. It was so hard. And within a few months that was over and the rest is history. So it was just looking over and there was a vacuum that I think ultimately Taylor filled in the PHP ecosystem. So everybody wins. The folks that stuck with PHP got Laravel and I myself got Rails and I've loved it ever since. I've been really happy developing in Rails ever since. I can't think of a time when I've had second thoughts. Mostly it's just looking back at Laravel and gleaning sort of inspiration because you're right. It's on another level. It's a really great everything. Everything about it's great. Yep. And I think we should get to where we're at today, but I have a hot take on why Laravel and the ecosystem is so great. And it's not really that hot of a take, but it's because DHH has Basecamp and Taylor has Laravel. Rails benefits, I think, a lot from being extracted from a real world product in that DHH gets a lot of real world use cases to pull out. I think Laravel benefits from the same thing in that he can pull use cases out of Forge and Envoyer and Vapor. And those are like real products. But everything that he builds, everything that Taylor builds is for the Laravel ecosystem. There is no base camp for like just for normies. Everything that Taylor builds is for other Laravel developers. And so we end up with an ungodly amount of first party stuff because he has no other things vying for his attention. The only thing vying for Taylor's attention is Laravel and Laravel developers. So I think that's one thing that we get a huge benefit from in terms of the ecosystem, not necessarily just the framework itself. Yeah, I think you sized that up. And definitely when you look at Laravel, it is a much more comprehensive brand. I mean, it's gorgeous. You look on the footer for any Rails developers that haven't looked at the Laravel homepage. (laughs) Man, you think you were buying sneakers on that site. It is (laughs) fantastic. And you scroll all the way to the bottom and there's just this gorgeous, massive banner, Laravel. And there's all these things that are under the Laravel umbrella, whereas in the Rails ecosystem, it's largely been left to the actual footprint of Rails itself is quite narrow and hasn't really that surface area, that landmass, whatever you want to call it, hasn't really grown substantially over the years. It's become a better version of itself. I think a great example is like the work that Aaron did on Errol, but there's been other things along the way. There's a very clean line of demarcation, for example. There are almost no first-party views and controllers that get shipped from Rails itself. It's always things like Devise and other third-party libraries that aren't... Yeah, so I think the umbrella for Rails, first-party Rails is smaller. And I think that for Laravel, it's absolutely massive. And I think that's fantastic. I think one of the byproducts of that is what you said about developer experience. Having end-to-end polish is easier when you control as many pieces as possible that you know people will be using inevitably. 
Yes. And so I think Laravel really benefits from that a lot. Yep. I fully agree. So that is what sort of the developer experience, the documentation, the ease of getting started. That is what drew you to Laravel in the first place all those years ago as a core principle of the ecosystem or whatever. How has that evolved for you to bring you to what you're working on now and your own contributions to the Laravel ecosystem? That's interesting because I think if we zoom out from documentation, which is what kind of pulled me in and take it as more fully developer experience and I'll say like decreasing pain. So early on, it was documentation. I think not totally unrelated to what we just talked about. That has grown. That ethos has grown in Laravel to encompass how can Laravel take away painful parts of development? And so things have just continually been added over the past 10 years. We have first party queues. We have Sidekick, but it's first party. Yep. The queues, the jobs, and like a full-on Redis monitoring and dashboard and all that. We have all of that first party. Weirdly, we have several first party hosting solutions in terms of server full and serverless. And so I think that vision of what would make a Laravel developer's life better? What would make a Laravel developer's life easier? And so that has permeated the framework, but has also kind of where I'm living right now too, in terms of like, what are my contributions to the framework or to the ecosystem in general? I think I have found a good home in how can I solve some really hard problems that a lot of people have? How can I absorb all of the pain and then give someone else an incredibly easy experience to interact with. So two things. One is Sidecar. Sidecar is an open source library that allows you to run functions on a serverless platform from your Laravel application. And so the pain there is you're hosting your application and you want to run headless Chrome or you want to run a node process or you want to run, for whatever reason, Python or Ruby or .NET, all from your Laravel application. And so the pain is, good Lord, am I going to have to switch to Docker containers so that I can now ensure my environment is consistent across developing and production and all of that? And I looked at that and I was like, this sucks. Like, this is really painful. And I had to do it personally and thought, wow, this is awful and I hate it. And so immediately I was thinking, okay, well, there are other people that have to do this and feel the pain, but maybe other people have a higher pain tolerance. I think Adam Wathens talked about this before. Like you need to, if you're you're like in the business of developing tools for other people, you need to lower your pain tolerance. So where you hit something painful, you don't just grit your teeth and move through it. You fix it so that everyone else gets that. So you need to make yourself sensitive to painful parts of whatever it is you're developing and make them not painful. That's what I did with Sidecar. It's like, this sucks and I hate it. So I'm going to spend an unreasonable amount of time making it so it doesn't suck and I don't hate it. Man, I had that feeling last night so hard. I've got like a lot of stuff cooking right now. And I was working on one thing in particular and I absolutely hated it. And I actually had the thought like, 
there are days I love what I do. I'm so grateful that I get to work even just as a developer generally, but then getting to work on what I work on, I'm so grateful that I'm able to, but there are still days when I literally hate the thing that I'm working on. Even when the thing that I'm working on, I hate it. The silver lining of that is I just absorbed the most painful part is exactly what you just said. I got to absorb the most painful part of that for a hundred, for a thousand other people that no longer need to feel that pain or whatever. So with the sidecar presentation that you did at Laracon, that was next level. From a demo perspective, it was a sort of mother of all demos kind of thing. It had like that great demo ability, but the reaction that would have been evident to anybody that was watching it. But also the reaction, I actually took a screenshot. I never posted it or anything. I didn't have an opportunity to put it into something, but I took a screenshot of the reactions that were happening and people were just losing their freaking (laughs) minds. And so I feel like it's got to be like a law of the universe or something. The more aggravating and frustrating and anger inducing, if that's the type of reaction that a person has to something, the more irritating something was to do or to accomplish, the more mind blown emojis are going to stream when you record a video of it and share with the internet. I've seen that over and over again, not just with the demo that you did, but other things, videos that I've been able to record and publish and stuff like that, that it's almost like the harder it was to make it easy, the more people look at it and they're just like, didn't see that coming. I thought that was a really cool part of the sidekick stuff, because if you just explained it, if you just like, say, and I did just explain it and nobody cared. (laughs) I mean, yeah, it it had been released for a couple months and nobody cared. Yep. But when you see it in action, I think something clicks for people. Yeah, that was a really cool one. So what else are you working on? So the other thing that I'm working on is this visual filter builder, and we call that one refine. And so that is another, I guess, example of something that everyone in their development career has to do. So at some point in your development career, you have been tasked with, hey, I want a report builder, basically. I want to be able to say, show me users named Andrew in California that have done this two times in the past month. Go. And so Everyone in their development career has had to build this thing out. And it is awful because the management or whoever wants it is like, I can't tell you all the reports I need to run. I just want to be able to run any kind of report that I may ever dream of. And you're like, well, that's actually kind of hard to do. And so what we've done there is we have given the developer the control to say, here are the five, 10, 100 different attributes that the user could choose. And then we'll just let the user put them together any way that they want. And we as Hammerstone, so Hammerstone is the name of company, side project company that is developing this. We as Hammerstone will say, here are all the things that the user can filter on. We will handle the front end. We'll handle the validation. We'll handle the back end. We'll handle the querying of the database, the saving of the filter so the user can directly address it later. We handle it all and we do it in such a way, I think, that the developer gets to be in control of like, 
the developer knows what the data is, but they also know what the user wants to see. And so they get to kind of sit in the middle and control the user experience without sacrificing correctness in terms of the reports and the data and without leaking implementation details to the user. So like if you have a field that's nullable, you as the developer get to decide whether you expose that implementation detail or you coalesce it into a true or a false. So I think the easy thing would have been, hey, we just sit on top of your MySQL database and we just let your users figure out how to do it. That would have been easier. I think the hard thing and where we ended up going is we're going to sit in the middle and let the users have a great experience and the developers have a great experience and the SQL be performant. And turns out that's pretty hard, but if we can pull it off once, which I think we have, then other developers get to just pull it in and say, here are my 100 attributes, you guys figure out the rest. And that's kind of where we've landed. There's a couple of things that I love about that product and your approach at Hammerstone generally. The first is you make this product available in Laravel and in Rails. It's in the DNA of Hammerstone as a business. You've got basically the same thing that we're doing on this podcast. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is, is serving two communities. So that's awesome. I love that. I think it's an incredible product. The other thing that I love about what you're doing and your approach to it is the size of the problems. I'm almost jealous of the size of problems because I think from a, if there's anybody out there that's listening that maybe they don't have a product yet, they might be listening because they're interested in that kind of thing, like uh, developing framework components or whatever, but they haven't done something yet. I feel like there's something very smart about carving out a limited piece of the overall developer experience to try and like solve for and improve. It is a lot easier, I think, to get traction with something where you have had the opportunity to focus, have a strong focus on one particular problem and just do the absolute best version of it. I think a great example in the Rails ecosystem is Sidekick. This is a very specific problem that is solved and it's like Refine solves a very specific problem and it's not an easy problem to solve. The surface area doesn't mean that it's easy. It just means that you're going to go really deep and solve this problem better than anybody has with an off the shelf sort of solution. Exactly. So kind of our thesis at Hammerstone is we build the things that everybody needs to have, but nobody wants to build. The issue that you end up with in most of these use cases is somebody comes, says you need to build this, you build it 60, 70%, and then your business requirements necessitate that you move on to the rest of your business. Our business requirements are that we build it 100%. Our entire business is this one thing that in your business would be an afterthought, but it's our entire focus. And to quote Adam Wathen again, he had a thread a couple of years ago that was like, forget 80-20, go the whole way. Go the whole way, do the full thing, write the docs, cover the edge cases. And there's always a tension between go the whole way and ship early, ship off and whatever. That's a bigger topic. But going the whole way and like fully solving the problem that you set out to solve is very underrated, in my opinion, because you'll see 
open source repos that are 70% of the way there. And you look at it and you're like, oh, it's not all the way there. I guess I should build it on my own. It's like, oh, God. Exactly. They were so close. You can't justify it from a business perspective if it's not your main thing. And for us, it is the main thing. Yeah, yeah. I love that. And the reality is if it's 70% done, that is the definition of last mile issues. Yep. It's not going to work for your use case. And they could have got it there or whatever. I think both of those things that you said, go 100% and release early, release often, those things aren't mutually exclusive. But if you pick a surface area, for example, of a product that is supposed to handle your authentication, your authorization, <laughs> your, all of your scaffolding, your invitations, teams, outgoing webhooks, incoming webhooks, OAuth integrations, like whatever sort of crazy person decides to do that, I think it's ill-advised. Because tell us about bullet train. <laughs> no, this is a legitimate lesson learned. I've worked on bullet train for like four or five years, whatever it is now. Right. Got a false start on it five years ago. I've been working on it for four years and I love the thing. I've had incredible life experiences as a result. Deep satisfaction for the work that I do on it. I get to work with an incredible group of people who work on it. No regrets there whatsoever. People used to reach out to me when they saw the initial sort of traction that Bullet Train was getting and that there was clearly an appetite for it. People would reach out and be like, hey, I'm thinking of doing the same thing. Like, do you recommend doing that? And at the time, I didn't really know what to tell people. I didn't want competitors. That was for sure. But that was inevitable. I think looking back on it now, the result, it's been great for me personally. But if you're just looking to like do a software component business, do smaller components. I have so many friends that have done things so much simpler than what I've had to do on bullet train and are arguably or like measurably, depending on whether I know the, the financials or not, had greater success with a more limited scope. And it's possible they're even more satisfied with the quality of what they've been able to do because they've been able to focus on something very narrow and there was a market just for that thing. So I think it's worth saying, because it is a big difference between the two types of products that we work on, that if I had to do one or the other, knowing what I know now, I think I would encourage people to do the smaller ones. I would fully agree. I think there's something satisfying about being able to encompass 100% of the problem. You still need to explain what bullet train is, but I'm going to guess that there's something unsatisfying about knowing the full surface area of the problem and not being able to address it all because the area is so huge. When I know that there's something in refine that can be done, like putting filters inside a filter so you can filter on relationships, I can both get my head around that and I can do it because the surface area is fractional compared to bullet train. So what is bullet train? And am I correct on that question about dissatisfaction? <laughs> So before we jump into that, the last thing I was going to say, just to complete the thought was because I don't think I tidied this thread up, but the thing that you said about go 100% and release early and often, the point that I meant to make there was just that when you choose the surface area of the problem that you're going to solve, you set yourself up for being able to go 100%. So you can release early and often, and maybe it's not there yet, but you know you're going to be able to get there. Whereas the implication of like what you just said is it takes a lot of people to work on bullet train. Bullet train is bigger than I would be able to do slash maintain on my own. 
And that's fine. I've been in, in a position to do that. Like it's been great to be able to bring people on and have help from a fair number of people, but that's resource intensive. Uh, then yeah. You're getting in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So there would be something I think appealing, especially for people that are just getting started or trying to bootstrap or whatever to being able to pick out a problem that they can solve by themselves with little help and go all the way on it and feel satisfied with the level to which they're able to solve that problem. So, okay, background on bullet train. This will be sort of my answer to the follow-up on the framework origin story. I always thought when I went to Rails that they were just getting started on things like scaffolding. And that was one of the things about Rails that was like, really part of the killer demo, which was the 15-minute blog demo, the big thing there was the app just appeared right before you from a, a series of commands because of scaffolding. Practically speaking, that wasn't really true in the Rails ecosystem. And so once I started building on Rails, basically nobody used scaffolding. So everybody would just say, ah, there's so much other stuff that I've got to do. Once you do the scaffolding, it's not worth it. I just do it by hand. And so it was interesting because I thought in 2010, 2011, when I got started on Rails, we're just getting started. These people get it. This is an ecosystem that gets it. We're going to higher levels. And that's really the, the key phrase for me is higher level, raising the level at which we're doing development and going from PHP, like a 2008, 2009 PHP, to 2010, 2011 Rails, like Rails 3, that was a huge level up. It was a huge level up. But I thought we were just getting started in the Rails ecosystem, going to higher and higher levels of abstraction in software development. And I think that is what has driven me to work on the things that I ended up working on. So it was fine. I loved Rails built a couple of startups in Rails. There was Borrowed and Blue. There was Churnbuster, which I owned, but both had success in their own ways. Ended up being acquired and Churnbuster ended up selling. And that kind of led me to the conclusion of like my first phase of being a Rails developer. Hey, I'm good with this thing. We can build businesses out of thin air with just me and Rails. So when I got back to work, there was... This desire, I think, on my part to see Rails go to another level. And lo and behold, what is in the Laravel ecosystem but Laravel Spark? And it's interesting, like, I don't even really remember what the surface area of Spark was at that time. I think it was quite limited, but it did subscriptions. It did authentication. Teams. Oh, well, if it did teams, then it's not so limited. That's a biggie. <laughs> but it had this SaaS in a box sort of pitch. And that to me was like, that is the right idea. That is going to another level. And coming full circle with Brennan, Brennan started a new application, new business called Write Message, which he still works on to this day with Shy. And they built Write Message in Laravel because... I don't think I knew that. You didn't know that? No. And specifically, they built it in Laravel because of Spark. Really? Yeah. 
the guy that more or less, I mean, it was basically Brennan Dunn and Ken Collins and Brian Smith. Those were the three Norfolkians that got me into Rails. And Brennan pieces out from the Rails ecosystem because of Spark. And yeah, people can't see it, but Aaron's <laughs> pumping his fist on the webcam right now. We got so, him. Yeah. And I know you love that. But for me, I was like, no way. I'm too old. I don't want to learn new tricks. I love Rails. I got to do something about this. And that was the genesis of Bullet Train. So when I got back to work late 2016, I got a false start on it, tried to get something started, didn't really work, talked about it with some folks. And then in 2017, toward the end of that year, actually got like a real start on it. And that's a longer story than we have time to tell today. But just in terms of how did that initial attraction to Rails, what did that evolve into and how does it kind of inform or how did it inspire the things that I try to contribute to the Rails ecosystem now? I was satisfied with Rails's evolution, how it got to be a better version of itself, but it didn't go far enough. It wasn't comprehensive or first party enough. And so what Bullet Train effectively became was like another framework on top of, as a commercial product that I sell to people, it was like a commercial framework in the image of what I wished existed on top of the Rails core, but it brought in a lot of third-party things like Devise and CanCanCan and API libraries and things like that and OmniAuth, all of that stuff. And it made them effectively first-party things so that if you're using Bullet Train, you don't choose Devise, you don't choose CanCanCan, you get them automatically. They're part of the framework. And that really is, it comes back, I think, to the same thing that you were talking about. The gold standard for me isn't, can you build a little blog in 15 minutes? The gold standard for me is, you want to build a new SaaS app? Can you get it into production in an hour? Can you get started, spin up your new project, have it launched to Heroku and have the same thing that it got you sort of started in Laravel or in Yi? Is that what it was called? No, yeah, that's right. The thing that got you started there was it was zero friction to get started. And my end goal with Bullet Train really is how complete an application, how good looking an application, how functionally comprehensive an application can I help somebody build with zilch friction? Just to wrap that up, your surface area is ginormous because hit me with 20 of the features, just rapid fire. Oh, it's more than it should be. And authentication, authorization. So that's like, can somebody do something? We've got payments, we've got REST API, serializers, you've got all your integration, like we generate integrations from code. The scaffolding engine is actually the most special thing of all, really, in Bullet Train, because it's two things. It has a unique take on templates for code generation. So the templates are living pieces that you can actually run in the application and then also generate code from them. That's unlike traditional Rails scaffolding. But the other thing that's beautiful about the scaffolding is when you know what all the dependencies of the application are, man, you can scaffold some pretty crazy stuff 
So we've got like all the reactivity stuff like cable ready, stimulus reflex, and we use hot wire and turbo for the things that it's really good for. So I think I maybe mentioned it incoming, outgoing web hooks, real time conversation threads. You can scaffold them into your app and there's a little conversations inbox. We've got audit trail, all of this stuff. So we do a crazy number of features and The reality is my plight is similar in some ways to the DNA of Rails, which is the entire time I've been building Bullet Train, I've been working with people to build applications with Bullet Train. It's been a big source of revenue for the business, but it's also been an incredible validation that our abstractions are good, that the tooling is good in the size of some of these applications that we've built. Multiple applications that have over 150 models in the domain models. And we're able to do that with really efficient development teams because of the tooling. So that's deeply satisfying on a professional level. Like I feel like there are things in Bullet Train that are have the opportunity to be a real contribution to just the philosophy of software development generally. The stuff about code generation, having a ton of fixed dependencies. It's like omakase to the max. Last thing I'll say about it, I basically describe it to people Rails historically has this phrase, Rails is omakase, which refers to like chef's choice at a sushi restaurant and they are going to set the course. Well, if Rails is omakase, bullet train is like a seven day package vacation and all your meals and hotels and destinations are all planned for you for better or for worse. That doesn't appeal to everybody, but there is a certain class of developer. As a business, we have super fans amongst our customers. And so that's where it is. There's so much more that we can kind of unpack on that one over time. And inevitably, I think we'll get to pieces of it. But that's where my desire for higher level development has led me to in the Rails ecosystem. Yeah, I think there's a lot more to unpack there in future episodes. And I think the philosophy of Bullet Train and I think some things that are coming on the Bullet Train side will be very interesting to dig into. And I think the meta framework aspect of Bullet Train is something that I would like to talk about as a teaser. I think perhaps Bullet Train is very similar to Laravel in the same way that Rails is similar to some of the stuff that underlies Laravel. Because you have made decisions about bringing together packages in the ecosystem and combining them into a cohesive narrative. And I think there's something there that would be interesting to talk about. So you like talking about frameworks? Is that what I'm hearing? Uh, yeah, that's what that's what you're hearing me say. <laughs> Maybe we should do a podcast and call Maybe it we should. Uh, Framework Friends. I love it. I love it. Let's do it. Looking forward to continuing the conversation. Chat with you soon, Aaron. Congratulations. All right. Sounds good. Thanks. See ya.